Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. So what do you want to hack for, Pickle? I can't sleep nights. There's a port up there just for that. Yeah, I know, I tried that. So what do you do now? Uh, ride around nights, mostly. Subways, buses. I figure, you know, I'm going to do that, I might as well get paid for it. Travis, you run all over town, don't you? Yeah. I mean, you handle some pretty rough customers here. Yeah. You carry a piece? No. You need one? No. 12 hours of work and I still can't sleep. Damn. Days go on and on. We don't end. I really... You know, I really want to... I got some bad ideas in my head. I just... Why won't you talk to me? Why don't you answer my calls when I call you? You think I don't know you're here? Let's not have any you trouble. The idea had been growing in my brain for some time. True force. All the king's men cannot put it back together again. And those were scenes from the disturbing 1976 Martin Scorsese noir thriller starring Robert De Niro, Taxi Driver, and similarly disturbing, though, in its own distinct way, is controversial French director Gaspar Noé's Irreversible, A Dark Descent into Sexual Violence and Revenge, and starring Monica Bellucci as that designated victim. And Gaspar Noé is our guest on this show discussing the influence of Taxi Driver on his own work and in relation to Irreversible, now in release a decade later as the revised straight cut, or rather recut, and Noe will explain how and why, and including deriving his representation of violence on screen from a surprising source, American movies, along with responding to public perceptions of him as, quote, an artist of scandal and a provocateur. First, some sound from the French language irreversible, preceding the terrible fate of Monica Bellucci's Alex in a deserted Paris subway tunnel, then Gaspar Noé. Hello, and welcome to our show. Yeah. Okay. What can you say about the release of Irreversible, your director's cut, and what you felt was missing in concept from the original release? It's oh. a director's recut. 
uh, it happens that the, when I did the, um, the first cut in 2002, uh, the whole story was told uh, in a reverse order. All the scenes were going not clockwise, but the other way around. So um, uh, the, the, the film would start by the end of the story and go to the beginning of the story. Uh, and the whole movie was a maze. It was, it contained exactly the same elements than the new version. Uh, the same shocking scenes and the same other less shocking scenes. But the, um, lately, uh, two years ago, my French uh, producers decided that we had to do a remaster of the movie. And when I got all the material and I had all this, like, 2K uh, uh, master inside my editing room and say, oh, this is probably the moment to do what I never tried is to put all, this, uh, all the scenes in a chronological order. And so this is a, it was my own idea to, to, to do it for the Blu-ray, but actually I like the result so much that we ended up releasing it in, in film festivals and, and in many countries as a feature film on a, on a big screen. Um, so it's a recut and this time the story goes uh, clockwise, so that's why we called it straight cut. Um, but it doesn't erase the previous one. The previous one uh, was the director's cut, and this is the director's recut. I don't know any other movie up to this date that has uh, that can be watched in, in the two senses. And the most controversial scene in your film, and perhaps in cinematic history of rape in your film, why was it important for you to include it and so graphically? Uh, it was the subject of the movie. Uh, uh, since I'm a kid, I'm a film buff. I was watching one or two movies a day from the age of eight on until today. So um, uh, I was raised watching movies like Death Wish. Then when I was a teenager, I started watching movies like Straw Dogs, uh, Pasolini Salo, Taxi Driver, and uh, to my eyes, um, the movie is just an imitation of life, it's not real life, I'm, I wasn't shooting the documentary, and if you take a subject, uh, you better show it for what it is. This was uh, supposed to be a rape and revenge movie, but the, 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 the truth is that the, the revenge doesn't work, so it's a... Uh, uh, it's a, it's a, it became a rape and murder movie because the, the revenge is just a murder. They, they, they killed the wrong person. And that's someone that you clearly understand in the new cut, in the, in the reverse cut that was reached in 2002. It wasn't very clear. Uh, so it's, um, yeah, it's, a, it's not a pro-self-justice movie. Concerning the, 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 the imitation of uh, sexual violence, uh, I saw it something that happens in life and it had to be represented in a way that uh, that, that was uh, credible, that it was that was realistic. And because the whole movie was shot in long master takes, I said, how can I, I make this scene look realistic without the, the, doing any damage or to, to, to the actors? So um, actually, uh, for the whole movie, I didn't give them lines to any of the actors they were improvising their lines and were creating the movie altogether but the timing of the that scene was the one that the the the, the actors who portrayed the the, the, the girl uh, i mean monica bellucci who, who plays the, the the woman in the movie and the the guy who was playing the aggressor they said well this would be the right timing so they they played it and it, the the truth is that yeah it's, it's kind of shocking because uh, it, it looks real and I've read about your work that you're considered, quote, an artist of scandal and a provocateur. What is your reaction to that description of you? <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't think I'm an artist. I just make movies. I'm a movie maker from time to time. And, uh, and I, didn't, I never understood why uh, the word provocateur is in French. And it seems like people expect French people to behave like the Marquis de Sade or <laughs> or I know it's a, uh, yeah it's a, the, the the movie is um, yeah it's a quite uh, frontal uh, 
I like movies that are, are square and frontal and and yeah. To the if 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 I'm doing a movie about old age, I'll try to show what uh, old age and and dementia old age dementia can be. If I'm doing a movie telling a rape story that turns into an awkward revenge, um, yeah, I'll try to make it look real also. And what would you most hope to convey to audiences with Irreversible? And would you say that would be different for male audiences as opposed to female audiences? Uh, Actually, uh, when uh, I do a movie, I don't think of a general audience. I don't think of a male audience or a female audience. I mostly think of people who would be like my friends and and I know my taste. I, I don't do it just for myself. I do it for the for the people that I talk with every day. So uh, uh, mostly all, all the people that that I know really understood the movie for what it is. And uh, and the movie was unexpectedly uh, for me at least was a huge commercial success mm. all over the planet. And uh, probably the most graphically violent movie that I've done. But it was also my only big success. Um, and everybody was surprised, but that's how we went. And what would you like to say to people out there who may be disturbed or upset about the rape scene in Irreversible? Uh, you know, I, I guess people uh, are not attacked by the movie or the images of uh, uh, simulated uh, violence that are on the movie. Uh, most people who will go to a movie theater or who will rent the movie they know what the movie is about, uh, and most of the spectators today know exactly what's real and what's unreal. You know that uh, actors never die on the shooting, and um, and then all the sexual encounters are simulated. But um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I would tell if, if if you think you're not, it's not the right day to watch this kind of movie. Don't don't watch it. And if you, if you want to see the movie, watch it. But uh, um, yeah, people are much more mature nowadays with cinema than, than they used to be um, 50 or 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Yeah. And you've said among the films that have most inspired you as a filmmaker is Taxi Driver. Uh, please elaborate. Uh, it's not very visible on this one, but uh, it's one of the many movies that inspired me. I, when I when I was a kid, I was going to the cinema every day, as I said, and uh, I was also watching movies by Rossellini, by Fassbinder. My mother would bring me to see uh, these German movies uh, of Fassbinder when I was 11 years old, and then um, uh, I discovered Taxi Driver when I was 16. But at the same time, I also discovered Deliverance, and uh, probably those were, the, with 2001, were my favorite movies of the American industry. So, um, yeah, to the, the day you, you start making movies, you always try to, 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 to be part of the same family of those you admire. Mm. And what do you feel is most misunderstood about you and your work, if anything? Well, I think people understand the movies very well. <laughs> I, I, I don't think I'm mean, misunderstood yet. The, 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 the big issue. Sometimes well, when I'm abroad, it says, but, but I, we don't understand. Are you French or Argentinian? What are you? And I say, who cares? <laughs> yeah, I was born in Argentina. But, uh, no, but uh, no, my, my movies are, are, are very frontal, so they're, they're easy to understand. Uh, the, actually, the, the, the only movie that was not so easy to understand was the, the original cut of Irreversible, because the whole story was told backwards. But now, the, the, with the same elements, I created a story that goes uh, straight forward, and everything becomes even more clear. And how would you say this film and this story were influenced by your Argentina roots and, on the other hand, by your French life experiences? Uh, I, I think my Argentina... Uh, I lived in Argentina between the age of 5 and 12, and the thing I remember the most was eating red meat. I'm, I'm a very carnivorous. But uh, <laughs> besides that, uh, my... my my family was my home, so uh, before that they were living in the States, after that they were living in France, and uh, I don't um, I don't think that my, my Argentinian roots are visible in my movies. 
uh, but also no, it's, it's the good thing about cinema it's universal so if you put on the side the fact of reading a movie with subtitles uh, the same story could have been portrayed in in, in New York in, in Tokyo or in Brazil in, a, in any big city the, the story of irreversible is not attached to uh, to its Frenchness. And is the film in any way autobiographical? No, I never <laughs> been close to these situations. <laughs> but yeah, but uh, uh, the, there are three characters, main characters in the movie. It's the, uh, the the woman played by Monica, and uh, by Monica Bellucci, and uh, her ex-boyfriend played by Albert Dupontel, and her new boyfriend played by Vincent Cassel. And of course, uh, as a man, I uh, probably my, my behavior would be closer to one of those two uh. main characters. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, uh, I feel I feel attached to to all the characters in the movie, mm. the, of those three characters. I mean. And one last question: You also once said, "Quote: I just want to be able to pay my rent and buy movie posters. I'm not obsessed with money." What can you say about that? Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's my mental disease. I'm a collector. I, <laughs> I, I, I even go that, that, that this weekend. I was buying movies on no uh, movie posters on Heritage. It's a website that, that there are auctions, and that's yeah, my passion. One day. I'll have to, to find a museum to put all my poster collection. And what about contrasting that with um, you're not obsessed with money? Uh, yeah, uh, money is, is like water. You have to do something with it. Uh, you share the water, you you use it to 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 to, to feed the, the, the fruits and the, and the flowers or whatever, but uh, uh, money is like water. So you cannot keep it in your hands. And, in my case, I really cannot keep it, so I, I buy movie posters and, and DVDs and Blu-rays, and I'm watching movies every day. Mm. I, I'm addicted to that. <laughs> and are you contemplating... I, I would say that some people are real movie junkies, I'm one of them. <laughs> and are you contemplating anything next? Uh, for the moment, no, I had some proposals. But uh, uh, making a movie uh, takes you as a film director at least one year, but with the promotion, it takes you more than one year in general. So uh, you better not take the, the wrong train. Uh, you better know where you're heading to, because uh, otherwise you will lose one year or two years doing something that you don't care. Okay, well, thank you so much, Gaspar Noé, for calling into our show, and the best of luck with the re-release, and I will get the word out. Thank you. Okay, bye. And Irreversible the Straight Cut is just out in release. I'm Jeremy Irons, and you're listening to Arts Express. Coming up next on the show, in the Arts Express screening room, the cinema cartography created by Lewis Michael Bond to promote critical thinking about how art changes the world by empowering people with new perspectives and why beauty is killing cinema, encompassing story, emotion, and the use of visual abundance.
The search for beauty in cinema is endless. Time after time, filmmakers display their array of instruments of beautification, great compositions, technically perfect cinematography, and mesmerizing color palettes. From blockbusters to art house films, there's a demand for cinema to look polished. Hollywood spoon feeds a hygienized and inoffensive version of the reality of life. Well, whatever, all right? I mean, it is, it's just, it's time to grow up, you know? I have a steady job, this is what I'm doing, and now all of a sudden, if you had these problems, I wish you would have said them earlier before I signed on the goddamn dotted line. I'm pointing out that you had a dream, that you followed, that you were sticking to. This is to. the dream. Of violence, of pain, of decay, of even love. Through cinematic makeup, everything is made bearable. Everything is made harmless. Beauty for the sake of beauty, even if it makes the message a tad more empty, even if it makes the film a tad more dull, even if empty beautification is killing cinema. But this is not a manifesto against beauty in itself, for beauty can be a great tool when used in the service of a strong concept. In search for a cinematography that speaks of story, emotion, and technical excellence, masters reach for the imagetic sublime through the use of visual abundance. Films like Ulysses' Gaze use aesthetic iconography to transform the way we see beauty. Hero utilizes beautiful cinematography to reaffirm its storytelling. And the tree of life engages with the universal sublime through the microcosm of a family life. Always you were calling me. Masters know that appropriate cinematography isn't always beautiful. It isn't always a synonym to a polished look. In Gummo, ugliness highlights the struggles of life itself. In A Razorhead, the absence of colour only serves to foreground the world of dreams. And in the existential The Turin Horse, image is not made to be easy to consume, but to be endured, to be deeply felt, evoking the reality of the characters' lives to the screen. To elevate both beauty and the sublime is to reimagine cinematic convention beyond aesthetic indulgence. to a place where art exists without limits. For it's at a place beyond conventional beauty that cinema's true potential lies. This is the case for Vitalina Varela, a film that shines a light to a different optic of beauty. One not of beautification, but a reflection on the sublime. The passage of time reflecting the inner world and conflict of the characters ever so slowly, ever so gently. In Mirror, Tarkovsky does the same. By sculpting in time, he refuses to settle for anything other than the truth of his own creation. What's with you, Marusia? This all might feel incongruous to Hollywood standards, but the sublime evokes what's written underneath obvious beauty. In a film like Fallen Angels, beauty is not found through grandiose compositions, but through the iconography of the filmmaker's culture expressed through every aspect of the film's grammar. In 
The bird people in China creates a microcosm where the characters exist in service of themselves only. It follows resignifies genre standards and by doing so reinvents the form itself. And a film like Dogville removes all superficial decoration in search for crudeness in story and visual storytelling. For there's no right or wrong when it comes to representation. To constrain a story into the moulds of what's perceived as beautiful is to ultimately constrain your own ideas. Take Uncle Boon Me who can recall his past lives, a film that renounces Hollywood standards altogether. What elevates this story is the creation of a complex and layered imagery, innate to the director's Thai culture. The same goes for Parasite, a film as much about Korea as it is about capitalism. For here's the thing, rather than preoccupied with aesthetic, great masters are preoccupied with sensation and emotion. Films like The Horse Thief teach us that true beauty can be found by the almost unchanged Tibetan landscapes, where the meaning flows from the process of life itself, not from camera angles or special effects. In the same breath, Yi Yi produces a meditation on the beauty of life by showcasing the brutal realities of existence through the pure simplicity of its aesthetic choices. In Tokyo Story, there's a solemnity to the imagery created that transcends everything. Sound, image, editing, it's all background for this inexplicable, sublime experience. Much like in Dreyer's Odette, cinematic language is in the service of deep contemplation. Here beauty is not evoked by superficial camera choices, but by a development of a cinematic language, one that's innate to the film's message. Akin is the cinematic philosophy of spring, summer, fall, winter and spring, never too sentimental, never too ornamental. The solemn aesthetic adopted here is not one of beautification, but one of cinematography in the service of deep storytelling, one that speaks about the truth of the human condition. The sublime is an experience beyond intellectual rationalization. It cannot be forged by a mere post-production trick, and it cannot be planned with endless storyboarding. It's a place between image, story, and human emotion. One easy to recognize, but hard to mimic. An experience so beautiful, it transcends beauty itself. To portray the sublime is to find poetry in the simple gestures of human interaction. In the forces that govern the human nature. Deep down, we can all access it if we're only ready to dive within. Master filmmakers distinguish themselves by creating a visual code of their own. They dare to reach beyond conventional aesthetic standards through sublime but others do it through extreme artifice. For real cinematic splendor can also be created through film artifice 
if one is willing to detach the notion of artifice from Hollywood's artificiality. How many rooms are there? I don't know. This is true for the beautiful dreamscapes of The Red Shoes by Powell and Pressburger. The highbrow visual abundance of Fanny and Alexander by Bergman. Or even in the production design approach of Wes Anderson's The Grand Hotel Budapest. Zero, sir. The new lobby boy. Zero, you say? Yes, sir. Well, I've never heard of you, never laid eyes on you. Who hired you? Mr. Mosher, sir. Mr. Mosher? Yes, Monsieur Gustav. In a film like Dreams by Kurosawa, the use of artifice elevates the interplay between cinema and fantasy. The heavily stylized cinematic grammar showcases extreme visual abundance to craft a lyrical experience. Much like in dolls, the objects of Japanese tradition are in the forefront of every colour and composition choice of the film. This is artifice in the service of cinema and cinema only. Artifice is also used by Mizuguchi Inugetsu. His own effective memory of Japanese culture creates a visual map of the Japanese unconscious in which the film Artifice is built upon. In Crimson Peak, Genre deconstruction through artifice causes beauty to flow from the interplay of story and imagination. Coppola's Dracula marries colours, artifice and nature through a strong signature style that truly encapsulated the gothic genre. And much like in Blade Runner, the result is that images never feel decorative or dishonest in that universe. Everything seems to serve a purpose to the composition. Replicants are like any other machine. They're either a benefit or a hazard. It creates momentum for the lyricism of the cinematic language to truly shine. The German expressionists took this notion to its limits, marrying cinema with production design in favor of extreme expression through visual language. For wanting to create beautiful images isn't intrinsically bad. Beauty can serve a purpose. Films of the likes of Neon Demon by Nicholas Winding Refn utilize over-the-top lighting schemes and compositions on the basis of aesthetic pleasure within itself. But here's the catch. Visual vanity here is in the service of the plot. It serves the film's critical outlook into the fashion and beauty industry. Once you hit 21 in this industry, you're so irrelevant. You're 20. <laughs> sure, she won't listen. Of course she won't. Much like Jacques Tati's exploration of consumerism and the modern society through beautiful visual comedy in Playtime, or the beauty exuding from the romantic splendors of Jean Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast. There's still space for majestic imagery done through extreme artifice. Rousseau says, if we assume man has been corrupted by an artificial civilization, what is the natural state? The state of nature from which he has been removed? Imagine wandering up and down the forest without industry, without speech, 
and without home. For beauty is never unidimensional. To some, it's in the extreme iconography of luxury in Marie Antoinette. To others, it's in the subtlety of gestures from In the Mood for Love. Beauty can even be made visible through decay. This is the case for Bill Morrison's Decasia. The film is a meditative approach on decay through its collage of archival images of deteriorated silent films. It proposes a complete abstraction of narrative and re-signifies the tools of cinematic grammar completely. In this abstract narrative about time and destruction, a collage of images that have once been considered beautiful are completely transformed by decay and time. Here Bill Morrison appropriates archival footage and juxtaposes the footage to create new meanings. The images in the film are distorted, not by a camera trick or by special effects, but by the passage of time made visible through the decaying footage. Here, beauty is the hideous reminder of the melancholic qualities of decay. For the beautiful images we may craft today may lose complete relevance over time, for an artifice without substance is rather empty. The real power of cinematic language lies in its diversity of interpretations and methodologies. Films show us new perspectives, new ways of experiencing and seeing the world. In The Elephant Man, we learn to find beauty through the gestures of others. In Picnic at Hanging Rock, we share a hypnotic gaze into the world of femininity. We can discover the outlook of a child into adulthood in Killer of Sheep or to grief in silence with a ghost story. There are no moulds to cinematography, for there are an infinite amount of perspectives ready to be unveiled by film. We're only going to find true cinematic beauty when we strip away all decorations, all ornaments. To navigate the difficult waters of the sublime is to breathe new life into film, to remove it from the autopilot. The beautification is a cage that threatens to kill all aesthetic insight that dares to step away from the norm. Without this erratic approach, we wouldn't have Possession's gruesome look into body horror, Natural Born Killer's heart-stopping look into violence and media. There's The Fly, Citizen Kane, Haxan, The Devil Probably, Dogman, On the Silver Glow, Adolce Vita, Audition, Holy Resorties, Clockwork Orange, New York, Logan, Festin, Asperia, Pleasures of the Afternoon, Even Vertigo by Hitchcock. Great films dare to reinvent beauty because they dare to reinvent cinema itself. For great filmmakers understand that although there is sensibility and sublime in the human condition, there isn't always beauty. Demand for cinema to be a labour of poetry. A sculpture of time. Magical and inconsistent. For free from the confinements of aesthetic pleasure, to forge images that are sublime, is to truly create, to truly be alive.
and thank you to Mubi Cinema for that presentation. And now on Arts Express. I grew up here on a little lemon ranch. It's the poorest lemon ranch in California, I can assure you. Richard, come with me, Woody. My dad sold it before they found oil on it. His ambitions, huge. Then it is time for new leadership. Bitter in defeat. Lost a nation. These kids are useless. Go on, get them! And paid the price of power. Others may hate you, but those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. And then you destroy yourself. No, we can't keep a damn secret in this government. They're stealing papers right out of this office. Now, we can create our own intelligence unit right here inside the White House. Yeah, we got the press this time. We got the big bowl. We're back. Daddy, you're the most decent person I know. They don't know the real you. If there's anyone in this country who knows more than me, it's Hoover. Why do you think Kissinger is taping all your calls for history? There's a cancer on the presidency, and it's growing. People gotta know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I am not a crook. Never give the Democrats a weapon like this. I mean, if Cambodia doesn't work, we'll bomb Hanoi if we have to. Yeah, and that's right. If necessary, I'll drop the big one. Well, this is sudden death, gentlemen. We're gonna get them on the ground and stick in our spikes and twist and show them no mercy. Anyone who screws with us, his head comes off. You got that? Aren't you forgetting who puts you where you are? American people put me where I am. Well, that can be changed in a heartbeat. Sir, Congress is considering four articles of impeachment. The charges are really very serious, sir. One abuse of power and uh, last uh, bombing Cambodia, sir. They can't impeach me for bombing Cambodia. The president can bomb anybody he likes. Did you? Daddy? Huh? Did you cover it up? You think I'd do something like that, honey? And those were scenes from Oliver Stone's Nixon, a 1995 dramatic expose delineating the rise and fall of the 37th U.S. president and in which you just heard the fateful words of his daughter, Julie Nixon, portrayed by actress Annabeth Gish. And Gish is our guest today to talk about that and more, including the female character she tends to play in a predominantly men's world, and holding her own, including the X-Files, Sons of Anarchy, the CSI, and her current turn in Little Dixie, as a political advisor caught between corrupt U.S. politics and Mexican cartels, and what silent screen star Lillian Gish, no relation to Annabeth Gish, once had to say to her about staying away from Hollywood. What was it about Little Dixie, this film and this story, that got you inspired to be part of it? Well, I love what John Swab is doing. I think he's you know, doing these unapologetic, lower-budget, gritty films that say something. And I love his genre and his ethos. And really, um, the the inv invitation came through Jeremy Rosen, who's one of the producers that I've worked with before. And I was just super happy to, to jump on in. And would you say the crime thrillers you've starred in, like Little Dixie, including The X-Files, uh, Sons of Anarchy, and CSI, have been by design or coincidence for you? <laughs> it's interesting. Well, I think over time, in anyone's uh, wheelhouse, these are kinds of, you know, narrative thrillers that, that you just do because they're super popular. But but I will say that this one had a has a special kind of... You know, in this one, I'm not playing, um, I'm not a gun-wielding person, but I am a, a political campaign advisor with, it, with an edge, you know. So 
So, and I personally love the genre. I think it's just, I think it's fun, and uh, and whatever John's doing with it is is it's not inventive, but it's almost inventive because it's such a throwback, you know. Now, you're not related to the silent film star Lillian Gish, but you did write to her when you were first inspired to become an actress, and she advised you not to. What did she tell you back then? She said, "Stay where people love you, and there's too much there's too much talent and not enough work." Mm. And both of those statements, those fair warnings, I think, are true. I think they're, you know, everything she said to me have have turned out to be very true. I, I, I unfortunately I didn't listen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the bugs had me, and so I was very excited to to follow my dream. And and I do, I love it. I love I love the film and television industry. And did you write back to her, and, and why did you decide not to heed her advice? Well, I initially wrote to her saying, you know, since we shared the same last name, maybe she could give me some advice, But and that was her advice. I framed it. I have it in my home. I suppose I didn't listen because I had already, as I said, gotten the bug for acting. I mean, I love I love the theater. I love, I love performing. I love what movies can do and where they can take us and uh, it's something that I haven't that I don't wholeheartedly regret occasionally I've had my days but mm-hmm. um, but I am I, I'm grateful to be a part of the industry mm. now in Little Dixie you play a character who has to hold her own in a man's world of politics and criminal cartels how would you say you go about doing that as an actress and a female character to be an equally formidable presence among all those males on screen? Well, uh, I think all of us who are women know what that's like in terms of even sometimes you have to act as if. And and now being a woman in my 50s, it's not so much acting. I mean, I can hold my own, and I know how to stand up uh, in strength and power and logic, you know, I mean, it's certainly an experience for sure. I mean, I've been doing this for 35 years now, so uh, I'm I'm happy to, to step into a role that asks for balls of steel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in terms of stepping into roles, in terms of the challenges of playing real people, what was it like for you to portray Julie Nixon, Eisenhower in Nixon? Oh, what an honor, you know. I mean, it was, uh, it was, it's quite emotional to have to film, you know, I mean, obviously that family is, there was so much uh, historical legacy and trauma associated with the Nixon presidency, but still an honor to play a character, a woman, daughter, and the scene with Anthony Hopkins in which I embrace him and, you know, whisper in his ear, Daddy, did you do it? You know, it's, it's uh, uh, an imprint on me that I won't ever forget. Mm. And what was it like being directed by Oliver Stone? Well, he certainly, at the time of Nixon, you know, it was uh, he was in his heyday of, of directing. <laughs> <laughs> I, he was always, it, it was always very respectful and, uh, and, and a, a good director to me personally. Mm. And what can you say about what you'll be coming up in uh, and what you'll be up to in the fall of the House of Usher? Well, I am, this will be my fourth or fifth project with Mike Flanagan, uh, and uh, I'm happy to be a part of his family, his repertory group of actors. Um, and I think this is, for me, in in his world, it's probably the most hor- like goth horror that I've ever been a part of. So it it definitely is out there. And what are you up to in the series? Um, I play one of the original. Um, well, I can't really say specifically, <laughs> okay. to be honest. I, there, <laughs> yeah, but it is it is a, a a departure point. I play a character with a very crucial departure point for the story. And any last word on Little Dixie? Well, I think anyone who's in the, in the mood for just an incredibly watchable 
gritty action thriller with heart, this is the this is the movie for them. It's just a fun a fun unapologetic dirty dirty gritty film. And with a film like Little Dixie, which is uh, such a male film, what would you say have been the biggest challenges for you in the film world and your many characters as a woman in the male-dominated film world? <laughs> well, that's going to take more than a minute, Prairie. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I, I mean, just, you know, I mean, I think there have always been negotiations that we do as women in any world um, but as I said before the lovely thing about about being a woman maturing and enduring in an industry is that your power accumulates and your own sense of self-esteem and, and empowerment so bringing all of that with me into my world and my work whether it's the creative work or the just the professional behavior on set there's a certain gravitas that comes with having been around for a long time. So mm. I'm happy to, to embody that these days. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much, Annabeth Gish, for calling into the show. Oh, wonderful, Prairie. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay, bye. Bye. And Little Dixie is out now in theaters. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself, too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.